Hello, Internet. My name is Walter C.A.D.'s Fedchuk, and welcome back to the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. We are here, uh, you know, towards the, the end of January. This is our last episode of uh, the month of January, but as we are recording, it is more towards the middle. And, uh, you know, Chase, there's been a, there's been a lot of stuff going on uh, in the world of esports, that's right. I'm going to steal the esports segment from you for the next podcast, and we can talk about football on the Steam Cleaners podcast next week. Uh, of course, when I say Chase, I mean my my lovely uh, and good friend, uh, lovely co-host, lovely person in general, and good friend, Chase Wassener. Chase, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Uh, I, you know, I, I've been trying to ignore that uh, the LEC started. Um, so, you know, honestly, I did see Rogue went one and two, and those two losses looked rough. I, so, you know, but hey, we won a game. We, we beat G2 of all teams, which is pretty funny, all things considered. I, I like that Rogue has somehow become like G2 Kryptonite. Um, though I think it's mostly because they just don't think very highly of us and therefore don't prepare for us uh as much as they should but i i I do have one complaint if you will allow me to get on my soapbox a little bit absolutely Um, yell at reddit reddit guys i you make some good jokes sometimes i'm not here to be a hater of the overall community that said y'all have to let go the fact that rogue didn't keep trimby Because your whole premise rests on the idea of, one, that Trimby would have wanted to stick around with Rogue, which, as far as I can tell, was not at all the case. And two, that anyone else in the LEC would want Trimby, which they didn't. There's a reason that despite going to Worlds with Fnatic, they got rid of the guy and have never questioned it once. Like... At some point, we might need to acknowledge that there are things outside of raw gameplay that affect whether a team wants to work with a player or not. And that might be worth keeping in consideration instead of just blanketly flaming uh, a guy for not holding on to a player that no one wants on their team in 2024. Is that fair? I feel like that's fair. I mean, I I think the second part of it is super fair. Being like, hey, listen, anybody could have signed him this offseason if they wanted him to uh, be their starting support player. He was available. And as far as I know, very (laughs) available. I don't think there was any point that Rogue, or at the time they were coy, uh, were interested in in bringing them back. It, It is funny that you did say, like, you were trying to ignore that the LEC was going on. Is there a particular reason that you were like, I, I, I'm not interested in the LEC? Are you going to be an LCS guy this year instead? Or I is mean, it just you're kind of like, I don't really care about League of Legends esports? My team sucks. That's all it is, is my, my team sucks. And it's unfortunate to watch because Reddit is right to criticize the Oduamne thing. It has never felt good uh, as a fan how we treated Oduamne after getting us our first European title. Everything around that was sketchy as hell, and I don't like a lot of the things that I've heard about how management went down. I don't like being owned by infinite reality. I I don't trust the, you know, 
NFT kind of whatever the hell they're up to seems sketchy as hell. Uh, you know, without Malring, everyone's getting what they wanted, and then we're getting flamed for not having Malring because we do need an on button. It turns out Malrong was pretty good for what we needed him to do. It's almost like players have roles, and they fulfill roles for their team, and even if their individual stats may not be as high as some other players, they might still be good at fulfilling a role that is important to how the team operates. And it's just exhausting because... There are things worth criticizing Rogue, you know, formerly Koi, formerly Rogue, formerly Rocket for. Like, there's plenty to to criticize them for that's worth focusing on. And all anyone does is focus on the stuff that doesn't matter. And it's infuriating. And there's just nothing Rogue can ever do to not be incredibly hated. And so it's not fun. The LEC isn't fun. LPL will be fun. I'm excited for the LPL, always am, always will be. Obviously, it'll be weird not having the shy there, and I'm not going to lie and say that it's uh, easy to see Rookie fall to a team like Ninjas in Pajamas, who I don't think have particularly high upside. It feels like we're watching the twilight of Rookie's career, and I am not emotionally prepared for that. But there are a lot of really good teams in the LPL, and they play a very fun style of League of Legends. So when that starts up, I'll be interested. I'll be paying attention. I'll be having a good time with it. Um, even when the LCS starts up, I'll at least be interested because they've made what I believe is an objectively terrible decision to play on a patch as soon as it goes live, which means drafts should be a clusterfuck, which should be entertaining. And I do like entertaining messes. And at this point, why not, right? Um, but yeah, it's just the, the LEC... The, the dynamic of my team being bad and everyone hating my bad team and not even for fun reasons, right? It's fun to be hated when you're doing well. It sucks to be hated when you're not doing well. Um, and we're not going to do well. So, you know, woo. I love listening to you whine and complain about this. Like I even no no because you know where I'm going. My team doesn't fucking exist anymore. Mm. My team doesn't exist. I don't have a team. And let's be honest, I haven't. We've been separated for a long time. But yeah. TSM isn't in the league anymore, and that still is like that's like the end of an era. Uh, you're which free is, though. Like I've been free be for hurt. a long time. <laughs> so 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 you agree that you're not hurting anymore? Like my team hurts me every week. Yes, but still, still, <laughs> you're complaining to someone that his team doesn't exist anymore. And his, like, the team that I was starting to date last year in FlyQuest, I was kind of, like, getting flirty with and be like, ooh, I kind of like them. I like their jerseys, which I don't know if you've seen their jerseys yet for this year. Fucking fire. Love them. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Absolutely love them. But, like, then they didn't play that well in the summer. And it was kind of just like, oh, you found out they listened to, like, Joe Rogan podcasts. And you're like, I don't know if I actually want to, like, date this person like long term um so yeah you know and, and here's the thing i had i had a little bit of a fling over this past weekend with the smite world championships because mm -hmm. all of this is to go into smite and the fact that they announced smite 2 which brings me to the final question before we get in today's movie uh chase should riot actually work on a on a League of Legends 2. 
Should no. they rebuild it from the ground up and next year at Worlds say coming in 2026, League of Legends 2 Electric Boogaloo? No, absolutely not. Because League of Legends isn't reliant on an update to a game engine the way that Smite is, right? Like Smite going from Unreal Engine, I believe, 3 to Unreal Engine 5 is a massive improvement. As far as I'm aware, there's nothing in the League of Legends client that is limited by an engine. It's limited by a decade of coders of varying degrees of quality um, going back to the very beginning of the game. It just, to, to me, right, you already have the game that is meant to be the refreshed League of Legends. It's called Wild Rift. They already rebooted League of Legends for League of Legends 2. You can go play it on your phone right now. They just don't call it that. But it is League of Legends, but a little bit faster with a couple slightly different mechanics and a smaller group of champions that are being re-added to the game regularly, building back up the same way that Smite 2 is doing. They're doing that. And in all reality, we don't no one wants this for them, including them, because they're splitting up their dev time to make the League of Legends MMO that's coming out in 2030 or whenever the hell it comes out. So splitting for League of Legends 2 would only delay the thing that they're actually investing in. So no, no, they don't need to do that. You know what they should do, though, uh, is acknowledge what, um, you know, I, Monte Cristo, uh, you know, I, I think has some... Uh, some interesting takes sometimes he can be a little bit of a hypocrite but he made a very valid point in that you know all these different companies are either having to like make a smite too or in cut back entirely on their esports budget and uh riot doesn't have to do that you know it's almost like their esports division when you treat it as a marketing asset is profitable despite what they've been telling the teams in their revenue sharing program for years interesting interesting perhaps i don't know worth looking into one could say that the cuts are all happening on the team side and riot seems like they're doing just fine actually i'm not gonna let a blind squirrel find a nut here mm -hmm. because uh monte cristo is a piece of shit and mm -hmm. who he associates himself with are pieces of shit Sure. Um, I think that the, the contrary point that he doesn't have to make, right, is, yeah, the LCS just had two fucking teams leave and yeah. probably had three other teams that were actively trying to sell their spots. Because it's um, not profitable for teams, for sure. Teams are losing money. Riot is doing fine. And perhaps those teams that aren't doing well should be asking Riot, where's their fucking money? Arcane 2, baby, that's where it is. Arcane 2 coming out at the end of 2024. That's where it is. But Chase, this Sorry. is not the original Rough Drafts podcast. No. This is not an esports podcast. This is a movie podcast. And we mentioned last time on Final Cut that we were going to be talking about Studio Ghibli and Hayao, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. Which is an entirely different realm than Smite Esports or League of Legends Esports. It, it's just like, yo, man, it's a fun, like, anime, anime cute, like, 
people movie, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's Studio Ghibli. Like, come on, it's got to be adorable, right? There's definitely no like tension or drama or like anything in this, right? Like, what what mm-hmm. were your expectations? Because that's how we start all of these. What were your expectations going into this? So, this is one of those film opinions that's gotten me in trouble in the past. I like some Miyazaki films. Uh, I Castle of uh, uh, Cagliostro, the Lupin the Third uh, film, uh, the first thing he ever worked on, I thought was a load of fun. Kiki's Delivery Service, adorable. Had a great time. Howl's Moving Castle, I just saw that a couple months ago. Fucking fantastic. Love Howl's Moving Castle. Love, love, love Howl's Moving Castle. Spirited Away? I, I don't like it as much as everyone else seems to. Uh, and it's not because the animation isn't great, because it is, but it is very much more of a vibe movie, um, for lack of a better phrase, coming to mind right now. It isn't about strong characters or a very clear plot that you're hinging onto. It's an experience. It's being whisked away, spirited away, one might say, to this magical world and trying to navigate it in the various encounters that come along the way and when i watch films i'm I'm looking for strong characters or a strong narrative that i can really latch onto and engage with and so you know which is why howl's moving castle is my favorite uh, of his films by the way because it is that that is the thing that it is it is strong characters with a very clear romance story at the core that i can easily latch onto and fall in love with which i did um, so The Boy and the Heron, I went in knowing it could go one of two ways. Um, it could either be another one like the films of his that I've liked that have, you know, that kind of core that I tend to look for in films, or it's going to be very pretty and very well executed, but I'm not going to find myself particularly attached to it because there isn't going to be the thing that makes a film stick with me um and without giving my opinion away i think that it is accurate when critics describe this as spirited away but with a boy protagonist so (laughs) so chase just gave away his opinion of the film I might be getting in trouble today is what I'm saying. I already think I might be in trouble with some people, but I, I might get myself in more trouble. You know, and, and here's the thing. That's the great thing about opinions, right? Like, you are allowed to have a different opinion. Like, you, you mm. are allowed to not share the same exact thoughts and ideas and feelings with everyone else. And there are reasons for that, right? There Man, I, you know, I told you I was going to stop bringing up tar as, like, a joke, but now I'm actually bringing it up as, like, actual, like, opinion criticism, right? In terms mm-hmm. of, like, you are allowed to consume something and everybody else have, like, a very particular opinion or say, well, this part spoke to me or this part spoke to me. And, like, you're allowed to be like, okay, that's cool that did for you, but it didn't for me and, like, here's why, right? So mm-hmm. I am here to tell you, Chase, that this is a safe place and I will, I will <laughs> allow you to speak your mind without criticism because I do understand the difference between some of these much deeper, uh, you know, literary movies of, of Miyazaki's versus the more, as you said, like 
vibe movie, right? Like, yeah, I would not say that Spirited Away is the deepest, like, in-depth of analysis of character development and theming and, like, all of these things. But that is the movie that I think a lot of Western viewers sort of is exposed to, particularly, like, our age range, right? Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know how many of our parents were taking us to the movie theater. Like, one, I wasn't born in 1989. But again, like, how many people our age were their parents, like, busting out a copy of Kiki's Delivery Service? Like, if we're going to be honest, they probably were like very interested in Japanese culture and animation, all these things anyways. And like they saw their, you know, put that onto their kids and there's a lot more to them that they got than just Kiki's delivery service. Right. We're, we're talking about like, there's a a huge depth uh, to, to Japanese anime and manga and like all these things. And spirited away feels like that is the, the gateway drug for so many people our age. Right. Um, to, To go further, you know, kind of the other, other films I've seen, I have seen Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. Uh, I recently have seen My Neighbor Totoro. I've seen Kiki's Delivery Service, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, and recently also uh, watched uh, Ponyo. And there is a lot of breadth that is covered by Miyazaki's films. Uh, and, and when you look at them, and, and even you know the, the groups of movies that we said, there is a, a vast difference between some of them i i know you haven't seen ponyo but even like kiki's delivery service where there is a lot more like whimsy to those films right there is a lot more fantasy to them but like bright fantasy like not you know brothers grim fantasy but like open nice child kind of fairy tales that are not like lessons to like listen to your parents or don't talk to strangers but just like bright and pretty and you know they do learn some sort of a lesson but the child goes on this like fantastical journey and there is some theming of like discovering themselves and creating their own identity but it's very bright and then you have these other films howl's moving castle spirited away that are much darker right they are much more dramatic over the course of everything that is happening and i i don't think i really noticed that until in the last month, having seen the boy and the heron and Ponyo and and my neighbor to- my neighbor Totoro, of like this understanding, I had never seen my neighbor Totoro until two weeks ago, and that was because my partner that is her favorite Miyazaki film. She loves it, and when we were talking about it after seeing the boy and the heron, she mentioned it. I was like, oh, I've never seen it. She's like, what do you mean you've never seen it? It's his best one. So then, obviously. I have to watch it. And watching My Neighbor Totoro felt so different from the other films that I had watched that then we were like, you know, wanted to watch another Miyazaki film. And I'm like, I want to pick another cute one, right? Another whimsy one to see if there is this vast gulf, right? And there's this spectrum that the movies sit on. So Chase, I I know you brought up this point of uh, the boy and the heron being the the boy's version of Spirited Away. So when you kind of look at the scale of like whimsy to drama, where do you think the boy and the heron kind of settles? Well, there's certainly some drama, right? And I I will say to to, uh, give credit where it's due, uh, the opening sequence of the hospital fire is one of the most beautiful things I've seen put to film. Like the animation there is gorgeous. It captures the the fire and the hopelessness of trying to um to save his his mom and and just the 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 way that that chaos of the moment is captured is, is 
beautifully done, right? You know, these moments, right, kind of ingrained in someone's mind um, and have such an impact that are then carried over throughout the rest of the story, right? Mojito, at some point, deliberately injures himself because the idea of going back to quote-unquote normal life is something that he's just not capable of handling after losing his mom and, you know, dealing with the fact that his dad's getting married to his, like, his mom's sister, who doesn't know that well yet, you know, seems nice enough, but it's difficult, right? And it's it's certainly, uh, you know, there's a lot of themes about, you know, family and, you know, making peace with certain very difficult elements um, in order to move on. Um, and the way that, you know, escaping from that can't last forever, right? Um, that's at least one interpretation of some of the, the, the common themes that, that this film touches on. And to that end, I think there's definitely, uh, you know, some heavy stuff there. Uh, of course, if you look at, you know, other parts of the film, the whimsy is very clear, right? The parakeets are incredibly fun. They were my my roommate's favorite part of this film. And uh, up until they are, like, actually organized towards the end and get a little bit fashy, which maybe we'll talk about later, um, you know, they're bright and colorful. And the idea, you know, them trying to, like, hunt Mojito down to, to kill and eat him um, can be very camp. Um, you know, when we get the, the whimsy of the uh, Warawaras, right? The little spirits that are trying to uh, escape this world in order to be born in the real world. And, and you know, of course, then they're getting attacked by uh, pelicans and you have to protect them. And there's this whole like circle of life thing that can be beautiful and harsh and tragic and you know, you know, plenty of cute moments along the way there. It's, it, it's a very interesting mix, honestly, throughout. Um, I, I do think it ends up right in the middle, I think, for me, because it, it is a whimsical world that is being created and explored, but it's also a whimsical world that by the end has fallen apart and collapsed and, requires one to return to reality and face the totality of what is left and it never loses that grounding right you know even just things like his dad working at a you know military factory creating planes for the war that's going on that we just know in the background is happening and can kind of then connect to some of the parakeet stuff later is like world war ii and how that affects a dynamic, right? The loss of the hospital fire implied being from, you know, an attack of some kind, right? Like it it never leaves the idea that the world can be harsh and there is loss and we have to accept and live with that and the cycle of life involves acknowledging and accepting those things. But there is still plenty of whimsy along the way. And the, the magical world and the time you spend at it has a lot of scenes that really highlight, um, you know, the fun of it all. And the, you know, the, you know, one, one of the like maids of the house kind of being reborn as this younger person guiding him through the journey and making sure that he's fed and, you know, getting to reconnect with a younger version of his mom and getting to have that like, so so i guess to answer your question the answer is yes it's it's got a lot of both 
Um, and I think that is to the film's benefit for sure. I think the the film, right, the movie itself, the animation that is happening on screen, it kind of settles in the middle. Right. You know, as you said, it has some of these moments uh, of, of whimsy, the Wara Wara, you know, especially. But then it does have some of these more like intense moments that it, it reminds me, particularly of the parakeets. And you bring up the, the fascist kind of nature of them, which we will get to in a, in a little while, because there is another topic that I think kind of flows better into this sort of World War Two uh, aura, you know, shadow that's kind of hanging over the film. And, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it reminds me quite a bit of the whimsy of the Yellow Submarine, the Beatles, like, movie, right? Where it is this, like, animation and bright colors and all these things, but there is, like, this sort of, like, sinister darkness that is happening. To me, mainly around early on in the film, the heron, right? The heron mm -hmm. is is very much trying to evoke this sort of like darker entity uh, you know the fact that his his um that Natsuko his his aunt or the you know his mother's sister is like fighting to protect him from this heron right they they determine that this heron is like evil they warn him about this tower that the the granduncle went into that don't go in there like it's dangerous we don't know what's there all of these things is like there's this sense of foreboding dread that is around uh, around the character, around the house, around the family. But then once he like engages with it by accident, it turns out like, oh, the heron like actually isn't all that scary, and you know is more of a, a um... oh, I'm forgetting the actor's name from It's Always Sunny. In yeah, there's, there's a bit of there's a bit of chaos to him for sure, right? Yeah, and, and just like it's it's not like this terrifying monster anymore. It's like Oh, it's like this this chubby little fat dude that like trips over his own feet and like can't actually be the terrifying or this majestic creature because you know reasons because everything is falling apart and the the kind of border that there is between the multiple realities because this is like a, a multiverse kind of story that's happening here um it is like falling apart so he can't maintain his mystique um gets back into like more whimsy but then there is there is this kind of like militant you know society that's existing in this other plane of reality and there is sort of this you're watching the collapse of this other universe or maybe it's not a, a separate you know universe but it is the like tether universe that holds everything together and you get back into this kind of more intense like this kid is being asked to essentially save the world Right. Not just not just his own world, not just his mother, which is a much more personal thing, but like this universe that exists that he is now magically stumbled into. And and it's a lot of pressure for a kid and it's a lot of stress. Right. It's a lot of um, anxiety inducing kind of drama versus something that's just like more terrifying like the scene where they open the gate in what is you know quote unquote a graveyard and all the herons get in and then they have to chase them out and not let them get to the souls of the war or like all of these different theming things that if you just sat back and just watched the film and weren't looking at it with any kind of analytical eye you go yeah this is a very beautiful whimsy filled film but then once you actually start to break apart the scenes and the connective tissue and see how these things go together, there is a lot more of this more mature storytelling and, and themology that is happening in the background. 
Definitely. And I, I mean, I think that that balance is Miyazaki at his best, right? You know, being able to acknowledge the duality of the, the living experience and, you know, this world that is created, that is being navigated, right? Um, you know, it's being presented with this idea of it being an escape from the main world, something that was created by the wizard, who I believe was Mojito's uh, granduncle, um, uh, you know, within the, the world itself, having escaped the world to go and build his own place and, you know, is precariously balancing on this tower of blocks that needs to be maintained to keep everything perfect, you know, this fragile uh fragility of of that i think is you know exemplified throughout the whole tone of the film right there is whimsy and there is joy to be found but it is always on the verge of tipping over and forcing us to acknowledge some of the darker themes and aspects of the world that our character is struggling with right it's one of the things that makes the ending so interesting to me because you typically think of these kinds of stories as one that like, oh, the main character is going to go on this journey, will have learned the lessons that were necessary, and will then be able to kind of take on whatever the responsibilities are now being thrust upon them, right? They, they have grown and become the person who can take these things on. And this film is not that, right? He, he says when he's asked for, you know, by the wizard to, to keep maintain this place using these blocks without malice to build a better world he's like yeah but i have malice i'm still figuring my shit out and i need to learn how to love people better and to better engage with them and and build a stronger base for myself before i can dictate what is best for a whole world um and of course that has consequences right by not taking that responsibility on uh the parakeet king can slice it in half and cause an entire world to disrupt which sure does seem reminiscent of some things that were happening in the 1940s that may be referenced throughout this film um but that's it's a super interesting choice right it's not a coming-of-age story in which mojito recognizes that he is this like chosen one figure it's a rejection of that it's this idea that true self-discovery comes from returning back to this less fantastical place returning back from a place that had all of this whimsy and grounding yourself in something else entirely i don't know it's a super interesting uh place for the film to go and i i do give it some credit for that balancing act throughout you know, it, it's very interesting we talk about this this rejection, right? That he's not ready for it, that he has malice in him. Because one of the things I, I thought about coming out of this, this film in particular, but also just like thinking about Miyazaki in general, is you brought up World War II quite often. We're not going to pretend that this is, this is anything but. And uh, the funny thing is I saw this film before I saw Godzilla, um, which, you know... If I'd seen him opposite, I probably would feel much would have felt much more strongly immediately coming out of the film. But there is this is a this is a World War II escapist fiction, right? And it got me thinking about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia series, right? 
which is also very similar to this, right? We are coming from, uh, you know, Miyazaki is coming from much more of Eastern fantasy, Eastern imagery in terms of how he is crafting this imaginary world. You know, the the um, the the child, you know, uh, Mahito uh, is being taken away from like the city, right? That this fire attack happens, which when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's an allegory for for you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki but then the fact the war is still going on and his father is making weapons goes okay well this is a different attack but it's still trying to evoke that sort of same imagery um but it is an escape from the city out into the country trying to get his son away from the war much in a similar vein to what happens with the the children in the Chronicles of Narnia series as they are they are whisked away to a family estate away from everywhere else and stumble into this fantasy world that is still teaching them, you know, responsibility and growing up and teaching them about conflict that they are experiencing in the real world, but in a less threatening kind of manner. And it is very interesting sort of the, that Mahito rejects it and says, I'm not ready to do this, right? I, I am willing to admit I still have so much that I have to learn myself. I am not capable of being the ruler of this land and, and controlling things and ruling with virtue and without malice. And then in Chronicles of Narnia, the kids like take the throne and are like, yes, we are the rulers. And then at the end, when they go back, then, you know, the series continues. And now there are these conflicts that are happening because the virtuous non-malice filled rulers have now disappeared and that's how the entire series goes but this it's it's fascinating to me that there are these two creators that are essentially telling very similar stories but from not only opposite sides of the world you know opposite sides of the globe but also opposite sides of the conflict and they have very similar philosophies and and kind of theming to what it is to be a child during this conflict and how you were sort of forced into becoming more responsible and that the western authors thought was that yes of course they are going to seize upon that responsibility and, and carry the you know carry the ball so to speak and be the rulers that that land deserves and Miyazaki in this instance is like no he's not ready and he accepts that he's not ready and his his granduncle accepts that he is not ready and respects that opinion and doesn't just like force it onto him i i find that comparison and, and just like thought exercise kind of fascinating um i know in pre-call you said you're not all that familiar with c.s lewis that you you haven't really read his works but mm -hmm. what what do you kind of think of that that thesis yeah i mean i I definitely see where you're coming from on that. And I, I think a lot of the difference here, right, is the Eastern versus Western ideology. Um, largely, I think, fo the, the Christianity focus, right? C.S. Lewis, from everything I understand, the Christian ideology was very firmly a part of everything he worked on. I, I've read his preface to Paradise Lost, at least in some segments. I don't think I ever read the full thing. But, um, you know, how he wrestled with religion and, and how religion requires a sacrifice right you know there is you know uh, the jesus metaphor within the chronicles of narnia and how people have to rise up and kind of rebuild the church so to speak is something that from my understanding 
is a strong central theme that obviously isn't here because the boy and the heron is not about religion. It's about being able to live in the here and now um, and, and learning to deal with everything that that entails. But there, there certainly like, I, I think a lot of what you said is, is a really interesting place to build from, right? Because you can see where the story could have gone in that direction. Um, and one of the things I think that we learned from Godzilla is that it's it's always interesting to see where the Eastern versus Western split happens. And I don't believe that this story would be better if it adopted some of those elements, you know? Um, it's It stands because it is much more removed from that and the chosen one nature of it uh, in favor of something more complicated. Um but it is also, you know, this idea, you know, in a lot of Western fantasy, right? The idea is that you can't go home again, right? You've gone on this journey, you come back changed, and as a result, you are incapable of interacting with the world the way you once did. That's a, that's a tried and true fantasy trope that you see in a lot of Western literature and a lot of Western storytelling. And this is a film that argues instead you have to go back. You have to go back and you're different. You, you have learned something and you have grown in some meaningful ways. Um, but you don't grow by escaping. You grow by returning and using that growth to better what's around you. Um, which I, I, I think is a, a very different virtue to acknowledge but one that is certainly a very interesting one to focus on i think it is definitely fascinating that like this is a different type of ending to the journey um and that that you know as you said western identity is very much oh you can't go home you know or if you do it you're so changed that it just doesn't it's not the same and i it is fascinating that that is the choice here is you go home changed but you go home changed for the better to improve what your life was, right? The the acceptance here of Mahito, of his mother being gone, right? And that there is nothing. There is no magical journey, elixir, potion, you know, anything that is going to change that fact. But because that fact is absolute doesn't mean you know, that he didn't love his mother enough, that he didn't try hard enough, that his father doesn't love him, like all these other things. And it is that realization that will allow him to continue the journey because he is still a fucking child, right? He is not the ruler of the universe, right? He is still a kid. And if anything, this journey is more about closure, right? An acceptance of, of, you know, what he can't change and how he can grow from it instead of like becoming the master of his own destiny, right? In a way, again, going back to Chronicles of Narnia, like that's what it tries to do. It, it portrays them now as the kings and queens of Narnia, uh, particularly the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'll, I'll really stay there because that is the like most famous part of the, of the series, of like, yes, you can stay there. You could be the rulers. And then when they like come back, 
you know, one of the consequences later on is that the older sister, like the other three of them, like eventually forget it was a dream. Like, eh, whatever, you know, we fell asleep in the wardrobe, but I, I believe it's the older sister can't let go of it and eventually goes back. And there are these consequences from them having left and, and like so on and so forth. But then she has the same journey that she had in Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So it is, it is absolutely fascinating that Miyazaki says here, it's okay to go home and it's okay to go home, not, you know, not the hero, right? Not the like ultimate hero. What Mahito does is still very heroic, making that decision and that acceptance and not insisting that, uh, that Kiriko come, you know, the young Kiriko comes back. Cause that's immediately what I thought was going to happen. Was that Kiriko was gonna come, you know, into their universe because it was not going to be like, okay, well now he's going to have his mother back as a friend, not as a mother figure. Um, and I do, I find that incredibly brave that they're like, no, no, I'm gonna subvert your expectations a little bit, you know, Western audience viewer, and he is going to let her go home, and she is going to go home, and he's going to be okay with that because in the end, like, he can't change the past. He can only not let the past destroy his future, um, which is I I find very very incredible, and also parallels what you have brought up of this sort of the parakeets and being sort of this fascist allegory of not granting them the power over that universe and and allowing them to also escape from you know, from their bindings because they are bound when they return to, or when they come back, uh, you know, from the bottom of the tower with Mahito at the end, they're turned back into parakeets, right? They're not, they're not like these monstrous anthropomorphic birds that are now here to conquer, you know, the world that they have to fight. They are, they are back to being birds and have, you know, be, have been freed of sort of the, the, consequences of the people that ruled them yeah it it is certainly you know it's interesting right because you look at the parakeet king and you know the idea that fascism and that kind of need for empire doesn't care about maintaining the innocence of the youth right they don't care about the importance of this kind of peace and as long as malice has any place in a world there are always going to be people who are trying to exploit it and take advantage of it and use it to further their own ends. Um, all of these themes are important and, and have their, their place, but it's, it is, I, it's finding it hard to, to put words to the thought I have here. But a lot of my feelings about the themes come from a very meta-text understanding that only really comes together towards the end, right? Like, there are a couple key scenes in which a lot of these themes come in, and the vast majority of the experience is not necessarily that, right? It's, it's a lot of individual scenes, individual adventures in which, say, Lady Himmy has to protect him with her fire powers. Um, or, you know, the, the, the Wara Wara and, you know, protecting the spirits only to find out that this means you're making the pelican starve. And, you know, there, 
they are isolated elements that add up to this larger point. But the journey throughout doesn't always feel like that's where you're going. It becomes a lot clearer that that's where we're going once we get to the end and we get to the wizard who really represents a lot of the core messaging of this film. But if you're looking for, like, Mojito to have a very active, pronounced journey throughout the story, I don't know that the film does that quite as well. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Like, so much of this film is, is reliant on the idea of, like, Mojito and his mom, who, is, you know, La Lady Hemi is indeed his mom, who escaped at a younger time, and time works weird in this stuff, and eventually she has to go back to her old timeline, which implies that this isn't just like a pocket dimension, but also like a time. It's kind of like, don't think about it, right? Like, don't think about the fact that theoretically she already came back in order to have her son in the first place, but also she didn't come back until after she already met her son in the magical world. Don't think about it. The film does not want you to think about it. Don't worry about it. Um, but there is like the, the scene where Mahito finds Natsuko, his, his aunt slash stepmom, which is one of those things that culturally is hard to wrap your head around as a Westerner, but let's just go with us on that journey. You know, she's in this delivery room uh, and Natsuko is very harsh towards him the first time that he tries to talk to her. And then he calls her mom and like all these papers and things fly around. It ends up knocking him out for a bit. But from that point forward, we're kind of meant to believe that like, well, peace has been found here, right? He has accepted that Natsuko is his mom and the motherly figure that will be in his life. And that is growth for him. Um, that ties into the whole, like, I have to embrace the people who love me and my aunt clearly loves me. And that's the, the, the thing there, but we don't really get any time for the characters to explore these things, right? Like we don't actually get to see Mahito and Natsuko engage in that way and, and have the real, like overcoming the difficulties, right? They don't talk out their conflicting feelings and what that means. And, and Mahito doesn't necessarily articulate all of the stuff that he's struggling with. He just goes from not calling her mom to calling her mom. And then it's done. And if you're going on a purely thematic vibe standpoint, right, that's all the scene needs to accomplish. Thematically, we need to know that Mahito has come to accept that this woman is his mom. And so he has learned to accept that despite the complications of losing his mom, there there is another mother figure that he can turn to, right? But if you care about the characters, then Natsuko not really having any chance to present herself as an individual beyond generically nice is a bit of a shame, right? And Mahito seems to have this moment of growth from a point of stress and needing to solve an immediate problem more than having seen something or experienced something from her 
that recontextualizes the relationship in a way that he can now connect to, right? That part never really happens. And that's because the film isn't character-driven, it's thematically driven. So for a lot of people, probably aren't going to care about that, right? You don't need that moment to be more than it is. But for me, it felt very rushed and lacking and made the turn feel less meaningful because it didn't feel like it was earned. It felt so rushed and it didn't need to be. I and I, I think that that's something that like so much of this film wraps itself up in a very interesting bow at its end. And that is important. It is important to stick the landing and have these strong themes that people are meant to connect to. But I I wish that from a character standpoint and a narrative standpoint, there was something a bit stronger making me engaged with the moment to moment and feeling like these big realizations were earned rather than just the thing that the film that is happening in the film because the film needs to happen. And I think sometimes I can fall into that ladder trap. So I, I do wonder if the fact that this film is autobiographical in some parts, that some of the lack of depth is Miyazaki not being willing to disclose absolutely everything. Right. That that from from some of the theming that's in here is that this is is, you know, much again, like C.S. Lewis, we brought up earlier, like the the father working on military fighter components, the family being moved out into the countryside, um, the, the hospital fire while not being, you know, exactly what happened to his mother, but his mother dying, you know, when he was younger in life. I do wonder if some of that lack of like depth and nuance and really giving it a lot of time has to do with maybe you know one Miyazaki not being willing to like engage in absolutely everything that he has now felt about those instances or maybe it is a parallel to at that time you know that's the depth of what he felt and it's taken him getting you know older and and you know having his own family or whatever for him to like really kind of understand all of that emotion and what that actually felt like and that this is supposed to be another form of you know catharsis for him another another way of him reliving those experiences but in a better uh, more understanding light um you know i'm not going to truly speculate on that but just as i've kind of like done some reading the fact that this has is seems to be such a personal story to Miyazaki and that the people around him recognize so many of these plot points as something that existed within his own background. I, I do wonder if that is some of the author, you know, being a little bit of an unreliable narrator or unwilling narrator at times. Well, but I, I think to, you know, to bring back the metaphor from the beginning, right? Like there's a reason people have compared this to Spirited Away, another film that I think cares a lot more about the symbology and the uh, kind of larger themes of its narrative than it does about being a particularly cohesive narrative, right? The idea is that you're on a journey, and that journey is meant to make you feel emotions. And those emotions 
and the things that your the character is experiencing emotionally matter a lot more than getting lost in the details. I I don't think that that's him being afraid to engage with some of these things. I I think it's a philosophy decision of like, well, what's what what is the movie really about, right? Is it about hashing out the individual details of Mahito and Natsuku's relationship? No, it's not. I I can factually understand that because the film isn't really about any individual character beyond Mahito. Everyone else is a cameo that this child is experiencing the world through and coming to appreciate these different elements of what makes the world what it is. And if you stopped and gave the scenes time to flesh it out, you'd be aiming for a different film, you know? Like, that, that it doesn't... I don't think it was uh, a fear of engaging with certain themes so much as believe that those themes aren't, you know, important compared to the emotional side of it. And that's just a thing that, like, mileage is going to vary, right? I, people love spirited away and people love the boy and the heron also known as uh how do you live if you're going for the japanese version of the name and there's a reason right because the animation is gorgeous and the journey feels like it matters and as long as you're not held up on the details as long as you're not overthinking the logical step by step that the but the plot implies and the way in which certain things come to be then it all works but i i do care about those things unfortunately and it's one of the reasons that like miyazaki is someone that i have a deep respect for and there are films of his that i i deeply love and enjoy like um uh, house moving castle but it's not universal for me because sometimes he's trying to build strong characters and lets the fantasy and whimsy of the world facilitate those characters and their stories and sometimes he just wants to go on a journey and he wants you to feel the emotions of that journey and there's a place for that right films don't all have to be trying to accomplish the same goal it's just a goal i'm slightly less interested in personally that that is entirely fair, uh, and I'm I'm sorry to cut you off there. That is entirely fair because I think the reason why I am I don't have you know mileage may vary here with Miyazaki is because I am here to engage with whatever he is going to present. Right? It's one of those things where um, maybe there you know uh, it's a chef. Right. I, I let, let's do a let's do a cooking metaphor here. Right. It's a chef. And if you have some crazy classically trained chef. Yeah. Can can they make something absolutely fucking just like perfect uh, ratatouille? Right. Let's say it's like just perfectly something super French classical, you know, whatever. And it's going to be pristine. It's going to have all this flavor and depth of flavor and nuance to it and you're going to be constantly going like what what is that next flavor i'm tasting and are they going to bust out like a thousand different seasonings in it absolutely right and then sometimes that same chef also makes a really fucking good grilled cheese sandwich and they don't do anything crazy it's just some some decent bread right they go to a bakery just get some good 
bread and just a slice of cheddar and a slice of provolone or whatever. And that is still that fucking amazing. But there is no intricacy to it, right? There is no incredible depth of flavor. It is still the best grilled cheese you've ever had, but it is just a fucking grilled cheese sandwich. It's just, they bought good butter, good bread, and good cheese, and that's it. And I think to me, that is what I go into with Miyazaki, is that I go into a a Miyazaki, and even a Studio Ghibli film, just period. And I say, I'm putting myself in your hands because I know what you are going to create, I am going to enjoy. And maybe it's that it's an enjoyment level of it's a really pretty film and I'm going to laugh and I'm going to, you know, enjoy the silliness with like Ponyo, right? Great example. Like just it, there are some there is some theming to it. There is some character building, but it is just like it's to me. It's just like this very cute kind of quirky little film that is a, a analogous to The Little Mermaid, right? And I'm like, yup, that's fucking adorable. Or it is this in-depth character study and relationship analysis and dark foreboding theming and and actual conflict in something like a hollow's moving castle right but i know when i get up from that meal when i get out of my seat i'm going to have enjoyed myself and i'm okay not then needing to put on the literary hat and analyze every second of it because i just enjoyed the experience And I think that's probably the difference here is that I don't go into a Miyazaki film being like, I, I, I'm looking for the depth and can, you know, connective tissue and all those things because my first Miyazaki film was spirited away. It it is one of those, like, it's not necessary per se, but he can do both. How's moving castle is proof. He can do both. That is a film that has all of the whimsy, has the journey, has the magical moments, has the things that we're talking about here, and strong characters. It doesn't have to be a choice. And I think that's one of the things that I I think I can struggle with sometimes with Miyazaki, is that there's no doubt that the animation is gorgeous. There's no doubt that there is a, a clear journey that we are meant to go on that has these clear thematic elements that are meaningful and can capture people emotionally. And I like, I'm not going to pretend like I was like watching this film as like a block of stone, right? There were moments that hit me. They just didn't hit as hard as they could have because they weren't as nuanced as they could have been. They weren't as fully fleshed out as they could have been because the film was comfortable leaving it where it was in order to do other things. And, you know, I, I, I guess that's that's ultimately where I, I, I leave it is that, you know, is it a good film? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to, like, tell people not to go see it. That would be insane. There's too much that is beautiful about this film to completely write it off. But I also am not going to sit here and tell you that there isn't a better version of this film out there, at least in my opinion, for in terms of what I think Miyazaki is capable of and what I think was being set up with the pieces that were there. I I don't think you'd have to sacrifice any of the other elements of it to make the parts that could have been stronger, stronger. And I know that because I've seen him do it before. 
Um, but again, I, I, I think that's a matter of like, you know, you judge a thing by like, as you as your metaphor goes in, right? Like, what did the chef come here to cook today? And this that just wasn't the thing that he was interested in cooking this time around. Um, so say lovey. Um, I, I, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry you didn't get your 30 course meal. I don't, I don't want a 30 course meal. I just think had he chosen a couple different spices than the one he chose, it'd be even better. That's all. That's all. Well, I, I, I don't think it would have taken a lot. I don't think it would have taken a lot. <laughs> well, with that being said, Chase, as we do get to our, our final scores here, I I have two just quick little things that I want you to touch on before you 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 give us your final score here. Um, mm-hmm. One, obviously, it is a Studio Ghibli film. The animation is, is gorgeous. You can identify it from a mile away and go, yep, that's a Studio Ghibli film. Uh, again, we, we talked about on the gaming podcast, Beyond the Frame, evoking a lot of Studio Ghibli from, from a gaming side of thing, even though it wasn't, you know, Studio Ghibli that did it. Was there a particular scene that stood out to you that was like, if I could only show someone one scene from this film that had never seen a Miyazaki film before, this would be the scene they have to watch? It's the hospital fire. It's the hospital fire, and it's not close. I thought that was an incredible sequence. I I thoroughly loved that. Um, I, 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 that stuck with me. Uh, long after the film has left my mind. Um, obviously, the parakeets were very fun too. I, I think there were a lot of wacky shenanigans there that I got a kick out of. And you know, the transition as they as the world falls apart and them escaping and turning back in normal birds. There are a lot of really funny moments of the kind of like transitionary period that are well done. Um, and I, I, I think that the the nothing can can top that. Um, that fire scene. I, I just think the way in which it is able to capture the chaos of a fire and the chaos of, you know, someone's world basically falling apart around them and trying to make out the individual details in a haze of just everything changing. Um, it's incredibly powerful. And, and those five minutes alone, I, I think... You can argue if you are someone who is a visually driven person, it's worth the price of entry alone. It's really, really well done. I I am going to agree with you for someone that has some understanding of Miyazaki that that probably is is the best scene in the film because it is such a display of the craft, right? And the and just the just how much of an expert he is at this craft. However, if I was going to show someone that had never seen a Miyazaki film before one scene i would show them the warawara scene because i want to show them both sides to miyazaki i want to show him sort of the more chaotic drama filled you know protecting them but then i want them to see the beauty at you know on the back half of it and i think the warawara going up into the sky and becoming stars is is just beautiful it is it is a beautiful scene to watch and again you know the fire that is a master of craft but i think for someone's first experience with it i don't want them just to think that this is this is war and this is you know this this is aggressive right that this is action 
I want them to see that little bit of a softer side to it so that when I do show them that fire scene, I go, yeah, he can do them both. And then just blow their mind. But I, I agree with you. For me, the fire scene is the best scene of the film. Uh, but I gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta give a little bit of a secondary opinion. Uh, and then Chase, I guess maybe sum up uh, as you give your final score here. You saw the film in Japanese with subtitles. Do you think that it being in Japanese added something particular to it? Uh, are you just going to flout the fact that you live in LA, so you're in a cinema city and you just kind of get to like experience the things that us, you know, East Coasters don't? Uh, and then obviously what your final score is for the film. Yeah, so I'm always going to say dubs over or subs when I have the opportunity to do so. Um, you know, being able, or subs over dubs, excuse me. I just said the opposite of what I believed. <laughs> Oopsie poopsie. Um, so I look it dubbing is an art and I respect the people that do it. Um, I, I, I don't want to like act like there's some, you know, that there's anything wrong with it or that people who enjoy dubs are incorrect for doing so. I'm not an elitist in that form, but I also do believe that there's a reason that the film was made with the actors that were originally chosen for it. Right. Um, you could argue that both are worth watching. And like with Howl's Moving Castle, when I rewatch it, I'm going to watch it with the dub because I saw it subbed to the first time. And I'm interested in the differences and how the nuances of the characters change based on who's playing it. Like, I think that is an art that is worth taking in. I just always believe I want to hear it in the original language first, because that was the way that it was originally built. And everything that was built off of that from a dubbing perspective came with the knowledge of those original performances in mind. Right. You start with that and then you can build out that. That's my own opinion on it. But I, I certainly I think Studio Ghibli in general does a very good job with their dubs, from my understanding. So I, I will not begrudge anyone who watched it that way. Um, but yeah, team team subs, I suppose, um, in the most lukewarm sense of, of that preference. Um, as for the film itself, I, you know, I go back and forth between a seven and an eight for me. Um, I think I will give it an eight. Ultimately, I, I do think that there's a lot here to love. The animation is gorgeous, as it always is with a Miyazaki film. And I, I do think that the way things come together at the end is the most powerful version of what that ending could be. I, I think it takes a little bit of a while to get there. And again, there are certain elements of it that I think could have been a lot stronger, but I can recognize that there was a very clear intent of what it was trying to do. And I think it accomplished those goals very well. And so judging it on its merits, I am giving it an eight out of 10. Um, but I, I can't give it any higher than that while being honest to my own experience watching it. I, I think that's incredibly fair, right? I think that's incredibly fair. I think that's incredibly reasonable. And I, I respect your opinion. I respect you maybe wanting a little bit more um, from some, you know, some of the more thematic scenes in particular. Like I, I totally get it. I totally respect it. Uh, I watched the dubbed version of it and I will understand that this sort of like sometimes dubbing can be distracting because of the lip movements, not matching up or anything, or maybe some of it doesn't translate very well. So they have to adjust some things. Like, boy, I really like this hamburger and it's, you know, a fucking rice ball in Pokemon or whatever, right? Ha ha ha. Um, I will say the most distracting thing about it being dubbed, I couldn't find Robert Pattinson in this fucking movie. The entire <laughs> time, I was like, wait, is Robert Pattinson the kid? 
Like, it doesn't sound like him. And then at the end, when the credits came up and it's like, oh, he's the gray hair. And I was like, what? What do you mean? <laughs> the only voice to the casting sheet that was uh, discernible to me was Willem Dafoe playing the noble pelican. That was the only one. And I'm like, because it's Willem Dafoe. Uh, and which yeah. is pretty incredible with a cast list that includes Robert Pattinson, Christian Bale, Mark Hamill, and David Batista on it uh, as the male stars. And then uh, Karen uh, Fukuhara, Gemma Chan, and Florence Pugh uh, as the main uh, female stars. So that was the only thing that was distracting to me. I do think it was worthwhile watching dubbed. Like, I'm definitely not a... I, I, I agree with Chase. I would rather watch something subtitled in the original language than dubbed but i'm never gonna turn my nose up at something dubbed um and yeah you know i i am going to fall into the same realm here as chase i'm gonna give this an eight and a half out of ten uh it was a lovely movie uh it was very enjoyable it has made uh january's japanese movie month uh marathon um very fun very enjoyable seeing them literally bet seeing uh, Godzilla and uh, Boy and the Heron back-to-back -back nights was awesome. Although I will say when I saw the Boy and the Heron, Godzilla was in the theater next to us. So there were moments where we would hear the Godzilla theme at like a quiet moment during the Boy and the Heron. I was like, oh, that's that's like, that's harming the movie. That's not fair. Um, but yes, I, I do think this was a nice little journey uh, to, to the Eastern Hemisphere um, to enjoy some of their their works, uh, you know, centralizing not only around being Japanese movies, but also centralizing on a lot of theming around World War II and sort of, you know, responses and and the the um, sort of the the scars of of the the World War from the the Japanese perspective. Uh, with that being said, Chase, that has been a podcast. Where can the good folks at home find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at Chase Wassenaar on the artist formerly known as Twitter or chasewassenaar.bsky.social. Um, I'm trying to do a little bit more over there because I find it to be less of a hellscape, though social media is what it is. Um, you can also find the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod on Twitter or uh, at uh, roughdraftspodcast.bsky.social, I believe. Um, so definitely follow there to get the latest episodes, including Final Cut. Or God, that's the one we're on right now. Steam cleaners, the one we do when we're not doing the one we're doing right now. I, I words are fun, man. I my my head is is clearly just grasping at things from time to time. Um, but uh, steam cleaners is a great way to to capture a more loose element to our conversations, focused on games that we've been playing, different games every week. So if you like video games and you want to hear us ramble about some things that we enjoyed, um, go ahead and follow us there too. Absolutely. As always, you guys can find me at C80s underscore LOL on Twitter, not the artist formerly known at it, as Elon. If you want me to call it X, you're going to have to fucking sue me for it. Go fuck yourself. Uh, or <laughs> on Blue Sky at C80s.bsky.social. I will say the one thing that is that maybe I need to change in my life is I don't have Blue Sky on my phone at all. Right? I don't look at it on my phone. I only look at it at my computer. Maybe I need to swap those things. Maybe I need to only look at Blue Sky on my phone and only on Twitter on my PC. That way, I don't have to see a lot of the bullshit that's going on in the world. But what isn't bullshit is we will be back in two weeks 
The nominations for Oscars will have just happened relatively recently around that episode release, and we are getting what I believe to be a little bit of a head start potentially on some nominations. Uh, we watched The Iron Claw. Uh, we're finally getting narrative enhancements, guys. We're finally getting wrestling on a podcast. It's coming. <laughs> the Iron Claw in two weeks. I can't wait to talk about it. And until then, goodbye, Internet. <laughs>